Our second reading from scripture this morning comes to us from the New Testament epistle to the Romans, the 12th chapter beginning in the 9th verse. Listen again for God's word to us. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal, be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, persevere in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly, Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink, for by doing this you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. I was at a family wedding last weekend, so I was not here for this, but I did watch the service on YouTube after the fact, and so I heard Pastor Joe's sermon. I heard him speak powerfully and beautifully about the 60th anniversary last weekend of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Specifically, Joe recalled some of the singers who were at that march, Harry Belafonte, Tony Bennett, who died last year, last summer. But another singer was there that day, uh, Joan Baez, and Joan Baez led that massive crowd of people in the song that was to become somewhat of an unofficial anthem of the civil rights movement, We Shall Overcome. You know the song. We shall, I won't sing it. Now, Joan Baez didn't write that song. It's not her song, of course. It had a long history multiple iterations as an African-American spiritual before she ever sang it. We Shall Overcome is in the purple Glory to God hymnal that's in the backs of our pews, as a matter of fact. And I have a companion to that hymnal in my office that tells sort of the background and history of everything that's in the hymnal. And it describes very helpfully the role that a certain institution, the Highlander Folk School played in popularizing that song among the leaders of the struggle for for civil rights. The book explains that Highlander was a social justice leadership school and cultural center in Grundy County, Tennessee, and it provided training and education for the labor movement in Appalachia and throughout the southern United States. Now, the music director at the school, because of course it had a music director, learned We Shall Overcome, or a version of it, from striking tobacco factory workers in Charleston, South Carolina in 1946. 
She taught the song to Pete Seeger in 1947, and over the next decade, it was very frequently part of the evening singing sessions at the Highlander School. In 1959, the next music director taught the song to the first ever meeting of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the group that would go on to organize the Freedom Rides and the lunch counter sit-in protests. After the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963, the song became, according to the book, one of the most recognizable movement songs in the world. Dr. King quoted it frequently in his speeches and in his sermons, including in his final Sunday sermon in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. He said, we shall overcome, we shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I believe we shall overcome. And I believe it because somehow the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. We shall overcome. It's the last sentence of our scripture reading this morning that has the song, we shall overcome, in my ears. Specifically the line that says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Because if you were to ask me now to condense the teaching of Christianity down to a single sentence, Please don't do that. But if you were to ask me to do that, overcome evil with good might be the sentence that I chose. If nothing else, this is a strong distillation of the Christian ethic laid out here by the Apostle Paul in the 12th chapter of the letter to the Romans. By, by ethic... I mean a kind of code for right living, right? We all have an ethic, whether we acknowledge it or not. Rules that we live by. I have a friend who has said for years in his own home and in the churches that he's served, big kids take care of the little kids. That's his ethic. Families have ethics. You may have seen some version of this sign in, a, in someone's kitchen or, or, or bathroom. It might be in your kitchen or bathroom, laying out house rules. The one that I saw as a kid at my friend's house said, if it's open, close it. If it rings, answer it. If it's dirty, clean it. If it's hungry, feed it. If it cries, give it a hug. There's an ethic in there, perhaps several ethics, in fact. We all have an ethic for Christians, for the church. Overcoming is our ethic. Overcoming evil is our ethic. Overcoming evil with good is our ethic. This is not an ethic to be endorsed or embraced lightly because for one thing, we need to remain grounded anytime that we're talking about good and evil. We need to remain grounded in a healthy skepticism about ourselves and about our ability to tell the difference between the two. We need to bear in mind the apostle's admonition here in Romans not to claim to be wiser than we are because painful experience has taught all of us how easy it is for people of faith to find ourselves on the wrong side of the good evil divide the church is not and never never has been immune from evil simply by virtue of being the church instead the catalog of evils permitted or endorsed by organized Christianity is long and sobering, and it ought to give us pause before we begin to speak of hating evil. Still, the Christian ethic is to overcome evil with good, with humble discernment, with God's help, 
that's possible. We have to try, at least. We can't just stand here in a position of privileged relativism and throw up our hands like good, evil, it's anyone's guess. If we believe that, we wouldn't pray each week to be delivered from evil. The reality is that the distinction between good and evil is not anyone's guess. And it's a cop-out to claim that good and evil are relative terms because you know for whom the term evil is not relative, the victims of evil. Evil is not a relative term to people fleeing their homes for fear of violence. Evil is not a relative term for those people who, after fleeing their homes, look out across the Rio Grande River to buoys that have saw blades stuck between the two of them. They don't look at that and say, maybe that's evil, maybe not. Depends on your cultural situation. Evil is not a relative term for communities targeted for harassment and discrimination. Evil was not a relative term to the masses that gathered on the National Mall 60 years and one week ago. To say that good and evil can't be told apart is not to keep our thumb off the scales of morality and justice and maintain a position of neutral objectivity. To do that is actually to place our thumb directly on the scale on the side of evil. Evil and good can be told apart, and they must be told apart, especially for people of faith, because overcoming evil with good is what we're all about. And so once we have discerned evil from good with God's help, with one another's help, once we have committed ourselves to holding fast to that which is good and even to hating that which is evil, the first thing that we know we must do is what we must not do, and that is to pay back evil for evil. We, if we worship in this space or online with any regularity, know this. We hear it often enough. This is part of the standard charge given by preachers from this lectern over here. Every Sunday at the close of the worship service, I guarantee you, you're going to hear it later this morning. Repeat after me, return no one evil for evil. You can do better than that. Return no one evil for evil. Vengeance ain't Christian. Though it is quite popular, a casual review of movie trailers over the past several years prominently features the theme of revenge where the good guys, Denzel Washington, Liam Neeson, dish out some much-deserved payback to the bad guys. I don't know who any of those actors are. That's understandable on a very human level, isn't it? Payback. Payback feels good. If you or somebody that you love has been wronged, has been harmed, leveling the score feels like justice, or, or at least it feels like something. It feels like fighting back. It feels like restoring your dignity. Commentators note that the context of this letter to the little church in Rome the context is the cultural honor and shame codes of Roman society. There were clear rules about what was required of a person if their honor had been insulted. And all of those rules requ required returning harm in the same way. I don't know how far we've actually come from that. The theology of revenge has never worked to the benefit of the faithful. 
For those same Christians in Rome in the first century responding to provocation or persecution in kind would have not only harmed the credibility of their witness to Jesus, who after all did not resist his own arrest, but would have invited a far harsher response from their neighbors, from the ruling authorities. And this this letter advising them not to take revenge is not the first time in Scripture that this has been said. It's quoted here in this passage. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's from the song of Moses in Deuteronomy. It's also in Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now you may recognize the last part of that one because when Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was, that's one of the things that he said. That's right. The command that Jesus identified as one of the most important commandments in scripture is connected to a prohibition against taking revenge. He went on to say, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. He went on even further to say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus continued an old, old biblical teaching against settling the score. Paying back evil for evil is not how we overcome evil with good. Still, evil is real. Evil is real and its impact on people is real. When a person's humanity is degraded, when a people's freedom is denied, when you're demeaned or talked down to or ignored, how can you be expected to do this? How can you be expected to resist the enticement of revenge? Maybe you have to consider the possibility ahead of time and decide what you're going to do. On the last day of our senior high mission trip last summer in Memphis, our group visited the National Civil Rights Museum. And there's an exhibit there, many of you have probably seen it, of a Woolworths lunch counter. The exhibit explains those sit-in protests that were organized by the Nonviolent Student Committee in cities like Greensboro, North Carolina, to protest discrimination in public places like restaurants. What really catches your attention in that exhibit is a video that's playing on the wall behind the model counter and the statues. The video is of a training class that prepared protesters for what they would experience when they took seats at segregated lunch counters. And the training class was not a lecture class. Fellow protesters taunted one another. They threw water and coffee on one another. They blew cigarette smoke in one another's faces. They shouted racial epithets at one another. All kinds of things to try to prepare themselves, their fellow protesters, to suffer evil, and they had no idea how bad it would get, to suffer evil and to not return evil for evil. Do not return anyone evil for evil, says the scripture, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. And this is why those protests were effective. Because there was no question when television footage and newspaper photographs of the sit-in protests were broadcast around the country, the response of the counter-demonstrators in particular, no question but that the protesters' behavior was noble while their opponents' behavior was evil. 
because the protesters thought about it in advance and they trained for nobility instead of training for score settling. Incitements to retaliation only seek to drag us down to the evildoer's level. You've heard the advice, I'm sure, about not wrestling with a pig because you both get muddy and the pig really likes it. Instead, the positive non-resistance that sit-in protesters practiced and taught to the world changed the rules. They, they changed the terms of the struggle to their own terms, good and evil, and they refused to accept the terms of racism and white supremacy. There's a video about those demonstrations and about the training for it, and in one of those videos, a young John Lewis says, there was something deep down within me moving me that I could no longer be satisfied with an evil system, that I had to be maladjusted to it. And in spite of all of this, I had to keep loving the people that denied me service. The Christian ethic of overcoming evil with good does not accept a terminology of relativity or a terminology of vengeance. Rather, it dictates new terms based on our apprehension of what is good, what is beautiful, what is true, what is noble, trusting in the power of the good to overcome the evil. And worship, worship is the arena that shapes us in that terminology of the good and the honorable and the noble and the beautiful. Worship is our classroom to be trained in the ethic of overcoming evil with good. This whole section of the letter to the Romans is really about worship, about how worship shapes our thinking about ourselves and about everybody else, including our enemies. In the verses that Pastor Joe read last Sunday, right before these, we were urged to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our participation in worship, our participation in the sacrament of communion in worship, trains us in the good and in the perfect. The Lord's table is our curriculum for overcoming evil with good. For even on the eve of his arrest, Jesus took time and created space for mutual affection, a family meal with his disciples. In John's account of the supper, Jesus associated with that which was lowly in that supper by washing his disciples' feet taking the posture of a servant to them, thereby outdoing them in showing honor. And even in the presence of an enemy, Judas, who had already betrayed him, Jesus pronounced a blessing and not a curse. The resurrected Christ comes to his disciples, the same ones who flee his side, who abandon him, who deny him. He comes not with retribution, but with peace. Peace be with you, he says. And so we, so far as it depends on us, extend that peace to one another in worship and to all when we leave worship. Coming to this table in worship patterns our life after Jesus' own life, his spirit, his joy, his suffering, his prayer, his welcome to all people, 
his love, in other words. Here we are fed by that love, the love of a Lord who died for us while we were yet sinners in order to feed one another with that love and to feed a world famished for love. May it be so. Amen.